Welcome to the Sandbox. Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. Uh, for today's episode, we are going to share with you a recording of our recent live event. Yeah, science Mike McCarg came to us from Tallahassee, Florida. He describes himself as a Christian turned atheist turned follower of Jesus. He now spends his time blogging, speaking, and teaching about science, faith, atheism, doubt, and knowing God in a modern era. Science Mike is co-founder of The Liturgists. In addition to a podcast, they develop many resources for the spiritually homeless and frustrated. He also has a weekly podcast answering listener questions about science, faith, and life, and it's called Ask Science Mike. We are really excited to bring you this presentation of our Sandbox Cooperative Live event. Enjoy. It's Mike. Right on. So crazy you're here on the night of the supermoon eclipse. I would not have uh, risked missing it personally, so I'm glad that you're not mega astronomy nerds. Or if you are, you understand there's plenty of time to catch it afterwards. It won't start here until about 9, 11 p.m. Also, holy cow, we've already, this is going to be a good, a good time tonight. We've broken a record. My last name has never been pronounced correctly that many times in a row. <laughs> so really, thanks for the hospitality. Dave and I go way back. If any of you know my story, um, I started out uh, as a good Southern Baptist boy growing up and uh, had some life challenges that led to some doubt. I became an atheist. And then I came back to Christ in a room full of 50 pastors and Rob Bell. And Dave was one of those 50 pastors. So, uh, what is that, Inception, right? That's the movie? So kind of the, uh, the layer under layer. We're going to talk about doubt tonight. And I like to talk about doubt because typically Christians don't really like to talk about doubt. We tend to view doubt as a weakness or something to be avoided, um, I tend to view it as a treatable neurological condition. And I think in the shadow of the Mayo Clinic, that's appropriate. So obviously, we're going to talk all about neurons and synapses and the way they engage our spirituality, and hopefully, that will be more entertaining than it sounds at first. So the first thing I'd like you to kind of think about is, does prayer work for you? And here's what I mean. Have you ever asked people to pray for you at the same time that you've wondered if God answers prayer at all? Has that, and you don't have to raise hands. We're not going to go that far. I'm just in your internal monologue. Have you ever prayed to God yourself while at the same time you wondered if God was listening at all? In fact, do you feel close to God? If I were to ask you on a scale of 1 to 10, how close you feel to God, with 10 being very close, like you and God are almost 1, and 1 being so distant you have trouble imagining that God is either real or responsive, go ahead and picture for yourself where that number would fall. Okay? Um, and what I'm finding in sociology today is more and more people not only report doubt that God exists at all, but people who believe in God report and survey data that God seems distant, that if God is real, surely God can't care about humanity. Because when we look at the way things are, 
we see a world in crisis very often. How do we attach God, a God who loves us, a God who is powerful and can intervene in reality with Syrian refugees, for example? These are the topics we wrestle with today. And because of that, some people like Richard Dawkins and me a few years ago actually think God is not distant, but ridiculous, absurd, perhaps even offensive, an anachronism whose time has passed. Ew. <laughs> uh, and that's led to a culture where debates or discussions about the existence of God and the nature of God look something like this. Did anybody catch this riveting event with uh, Bill Nye and Ken Ham? Now, I actually, I like Bill Nye's work a lot. Um, Ken Ham has blogged about me a couple times, so I don't know if we're really tight, but uh, I think he's probably a nice guy. I watched that that debate, and Jenny can attest, my wife's here, she's in the second row over there. She can attest that I uh, just kept wanting to throw things at the computer because I felt like maybe Ken didn't do a great job representing theism. And maybe Bill didn't do a great job representing science and evolution. So I was really, really disappointed. And I also think it was perfect. Have you ever participated in an online debate about whether God is real? If you have, you're probably male, statistically. Um, (laughs) Girls are like, I'm not going to fight somebody on the internet about God. That's a waste of time. And guys are like, I can't come to bed yet. Somebody on the internet is wrong. So it's just how we roll. I speak from experience. But when I talk about doubt, I look at the brain. And I love the brain because I love neuroscience. And I love neuroscience because it's the only science where something studies itself. Human brains studying human brains. And your brain is the most... That was a joke, and it bombed. It's cool. I'll recover later. Next time, I'll cut that one. So 86 billion neurons, approximately, in your skull. Now, you've probably heard, even people who are trained neurologists, that there are 100 billion neurons in the human brain. And that's a figure you still hear kicked around a lot. And that's because it's really hard to count 100 billion of something, and also because your brain's density isn't even. Your neocortex, the wrinkly outer fold of the brain, has many, many more neurons than, say, something in the limbic system or in the basal ganglia. And so we've always just tried to project and guess how many neurons there are through statistical sampling. Uh, And someone figured out there's a better way, and you just make brain soup, which is as yucky as it sounds. You use chemicals to take a brain and dissolve everything, but when you do that and you mix it, you get... uh, Uh, cell nuclei from neurons that are evenly distributed through this soup. And you figure out there's 86 billion neurons in a human. Now, 100 billion is a huge number, 86 billion is a huge number, what's the big deal? The difference between 86 billion and 100 billion neurons is very similar to the difference between a chimpanzee and a human being. So if you ever meet a human with 100 billion neurons, you'll know because the movie Lucy will be real. They'll probably be like, levitating things, and they'll have figured out physics. When we talk about doubt, we tend to treat it as what? A spiritual condition. And I'm not saying that approach is invalid. 
But I am arguing that something interesting happens when you approach it as a neurological condition. Because when you study people's faith as a function of the brain, guess what else you can study? What effects are appropriate at mitigating something, right? We do this for Alzheimer's. We do this for depression. So why not have a look at religious doubt through the lens of neurology? Now, specifically talking about doubt, Oh, this is just freaky. Just hang with me. I came across a fascinating bit of research regarding epilepsy. And I've given this talk before, and as I said this part of the talk, someone stood up and had an epileptic seizure, and we had to call 911. So hopefully history won't repeat itself tonight. But it, it, it's really interesting when they figured out really early in, in the history of brain science, I'm talking 60s and 70s, epilepsy is a feedback loop in the brain between the two hemispheres. So just like if I were to walk over to that speaker and put my face next to it, you'd hear woo, and that would be feedback in an auditory system, an epileptic seizure is nothing but neurological feedback between the two halves of the brain. And that happens across a channel of the nerves, channel of nerves called the corpus callosum. Is this like the funniest talk you've ever heard? So the corpus callosum is a thick channel of nerves that connect the two hemispheres of the brain. And interestingly enough, it tells us a lot about people. We're always having a battle of the sexes, especially poignant in an age of feminism. And we wonder what are the real differences between men and women? This actually tells us something about that. Because in men, the corpus callosum is like a deserted highway. The two halves of men's brains communicate as little as possible. So one half goes, man, we really got to brush our teeth. Can you pick up the toothbrush? And the other brain texts back, K. Right? That's the whole thing. Whereas in women, the corpus callosum is in a constant state of activity. Women's brains are constantly coordinating a more accurate, more detailed map of reality than the male brain can fathom. What's interesting is this transcends cultures that are matriarchal. So when you go to societies where women take on roles we would call traditionally masculine, they still have this characteristic difference in neural activity. What that means is when my children are quietly working in the bedroom, in their bedrooms, they cease to exist to me. I forget that I even have kids, and I work on whatever I'm working on, whereas my wife knows how they're feeling, when their homework is due, and she's just dialing all these variables I literally can't fathom neurologically, which I think makes a pretty interesting argument that male humans are just sort of along for the ride in our species. But <laughs> when it comes to epileptics, male or female, the corpus callosum becomes a problem because in some cases, epilepsy is life-threatening. So early brain scientists said, this patient is probably going to die from this condition. So let's try something radical, brain surgery. Let's sever the corpus callosum. Your brain is in two neat halves. Cutting the corpus callosum is for brain surgery, deep brain surgery, a relatively simple procedure. So they did it. They cut someone's corpus callosum. And they had no idea what would happen to this man when he woke up. 
Can you guess what happened? He was fine. <laughs> like they cut the most essential channel of nerves in his brain, and he woke up and he went, oh yeah, I feel pretty good. <laughs> and no more epileptic seizures. And they kept tracking him, and guess what? His recovery went well. So what'd they do? Tried it again. They tried it again. And in this small trial of patients, the epilepsy goes away, and the patient is fine. To the point they were considering preemptive corpus callosum surgery for anyone diagnosed with severe epilepsy. Luckily, scientists are a patient bunch because the first patient came home to give his wife a hug, and he punched her across the face with his right arm. She was shocked, but not as shocked as he was. Another woman who'd had the surgery goes into her closet, as women sometimes do, picks out a dress that she's interested in wearing, and her hand jumps out, other hand jumps out, grabs a different dress, and pins her hand to the wall until she drops it. A third man came in with insomnia because as he went to sleep one night, his left hand closed around his own throat. In all these cases, someone's left hand appeared to be operating on its own with independent agendas. Now here's the thing, your consciousness, the thing that's listening to this speech right now, the thing that you identify with you, the part of your brain that is directing an action movie in which you are the hero is your prefrontal cortex. In most people, their left prefrontal cortex is the boss. Guess what? You have a right prefrontal cortex. And so somehow, when the corpus callosum was severed, for the first time ever, the right brain was able to assert its will independent of the left. Some neuroscientists wondered if every human being carries around a fully conscious mute slave in their right brain. That's where we're going tonight. Okay? Yeah, I'm watching the red. Corpus callosum in this room are rocking. So they cut the corpus callosum, alien hand syndrome emerges. You can Google it, it's real. So they are like, we've got to figure out what's happening here. So they devise an experiment where they can ask questions to the two halves of the brain. How do you do that? Well, you use monitors and mirrors, and you only display a question to one half of someone's field of vision. Little problem, in general, right brains are mute. Your left temporal lobe has language capacity. Your right temporal lobe, and most people can do pitch and rhythm. Musicians have a great right temporal lobe, but it, it's mute. So they figured out they could train someone's right brain to answer using Scrabble tiles and this alien hand. So they ask a kid. This is the, the worst part of this story is that it's true. They ask a kid, what do you want to do when you grow up? And he says aloud, left brain, I want to be a draftsman, which at this time in history was a thoroughly responsible answer for a young man to give. And they ask the right brain, what do you want to do when you get out of school? And it spells out automobile racer. Is it any wonder no one can declare a major, right? <laughs> the brain did not agree with the brain. They also, kind of as a joke to this same young man, asked only the right brain. They just, the word girlfriend and question mark. Never even asked the left brain. So he watches his alien hands spell out the name of a girl, 
And there's a video of this on the internet. And the kid gets embarrassed. He doesn't know the question, but he knows the name is important. More recently, researchers working with alien hand syndrome sufferers, of who there are very few, by the way, they asked the patient, do you believe in God? And the left brain said, no, I gave up faith years ago. And the right brain said, I will always believe. Now this raises some interesting questions. Does Jesus only live in his left ventricles? Does half of his soul go to heaven and the other to hell? Like, I can't believe this research didn't light the theological community on fire. Because here you had a theist and an atheist living in the same skull. I find this oddly comforting. Because I have prayed to a God I wasn't sure was real before. And maybe, just maybe, that's not cognitive dissonance. Maybe that's actually being in touch with all of me that God made. Maybe, on some level, I can believe and not believe at the same time. And I bet some people feel a little bit more at peace than they did a few minutes ago. And other people are contemplating walking out right now. So <laughs> let's talk specifically about what happens when you scan the brain of people who doubt and a few ways that you can treat doubt. Can we start saying that in the church? Okay. The first thing is doubt can be a completely rational process that happens via analytical deconstruction. You have questions you can't answer. You keep digging. Okay. That's one way that people have doubt. This is what happens when someone reads the God delusion. They're, they're firm in their faith, they read the God delusion, and then they read something Sam Harris wrote, and then they read, you know, Robert Ingersoll Mack, who was a big atheist in the 30s, and they go, whoa, wow, I was deceived. And they just deconstruct their faith till there's nothing left. Interestingly enough, if you brain scan someone like that, uh, the, the prescription is relatively simple, believe it or not. This is, uh, this is the easy doubt, <laughs> if, if you can believe that. If I were to brain scan someone in here in an FRI machine, and we had a good neuroscientist with us, and they were to say the name of your spouse or your mom and look in the brain scanner, guess what they could tell? They could tell what you feel about that person. Because a network in your brain would light up. So, for example, if you and your mom have a great relationship and someone says, Pick, think of your mom, your anterior cingulate cortex is going to have increased blood flow. That's the part of your brain responsible for affection and compassion. But if your mother was abusive and traumatized you, the blood flow will increase in your amygdala, and that's the part of the brain that coordinates, is that sports center? No, sorry, uh, that's the part of the brain that coordinates fear and anger. If both light up, you probably just have a pretty typical relationship with your mother. That's another joke that bombed, wow. <laughs> I, had, I had high hopes for that one. So, 
This matters because what happens when you have a relationship crisis, say with your spouse or your partner? You step away and you think about what went wrong and you think about it and you think about it and you think about it and you think about it. And And when you do that, you're using your prefrontal cortex, which is the CEO of the brain. It's the guy in charge, unless you're in crisis and the secret service of your amygdala takes over. But your prefrontal cortex is an accountant. It's a lawyer. It doesn't have any feelings. And when you rationally analyze something over and over in your brain, guess what happens over time? You reduce the effectiveness of the parts of your brain that coordinate feelings. So if you are in a troubled marriage and all you do is therapy and analysis, you're slowly training your brain to destroy the affection it carries for your partner. So oddly enough, prescriptively, one of the best things you can do in a troubled relationship is to go for a walk and hold hands, is to spend quality time together, is to go to dinner and maybe for a little while not even talk about the problems and simply enjoy being together because it rebiases the brain towards affection. What does that have to do with faith? Analyzing who or what God is is the worst way to feel close to God. Experiencing God is the best way to feel close to God. Our instinct is to figure it out. God's a Rubik's Cube. We've got to get green all on the same side and things will be fine. But knowing God is much more neurologically similar to falling in love. Which is why doubt number two is so killer. In my experience, this is more common. Literally thousands of people a month email me about doubt. So I have, although I don't have much academic rigor, I do at least have a large sample size for any statisticians in the audience. Um, Maybe one got the math joke. (laughs) You can get hurt by someone who you respect in faith, and it can lead you away from God. And often this masquerades as rational analysis, but what it really is is a brain trying to escape trauma. My dad was my hero, and he was a Southern Baptist music minister. And after more than 30 years of marriage, he had an affair and left my mom. And somehow, completely coincidentally, about a year later, I went through a rational process by which I deconstructed God. Yeah, boy, I thought I was clever. Turns out I was just really upset that my dad had let me down. And in defense, to preserve my relationship with my dad, my brain had to channel that rage somewhere. And where'd it go? my neurological construct of God, right? This is the tough doubt to recover from. Either way, doubt can be both at the same time, and when that happens, it's a terrifying dark night of the soul. Did you know that people who have recently deconverted from Christianity are at an increased risk of not only depression, but taking their own life via suicide? Doubt literally kills people. Now, in our society, there are two dominant neurological models of God, and this actually transcends all different religions, right? So, on the one hand, you have the, what I call the OG God. That's original gangster if you're not street creditworthy. <laughs> the OG God shows up in the Old Testament, and he smites the wicked, and he says, go into the promised land, 
and destroy every city and make sure you get not only the men, but the women and the children and the livestock, right? That's the Old Testament God. That is a God of wrath. When you believe in a God of wrath, it has predictable effects on your brain. One, you get better impulse control, right? So if you're afraid God will smite you, it might be easier not to pick up the drink in the first place for a while. That's the, that's the benefit of angry God. It creates strong social cohesion. That's another benefit to angry God. Everybody believes the same thing. You better believe it because nobody wants to get smited. The bad thing is it creates an incredible bias against the out-group. If you're not with us, you're against us. Now, we'd love to convert you to an in-group in many cases, but if you stay in the out-group, you're the bad guy. It also makes it more difficult to forgive yourself and forgive other people, and it increases your stress. It can actually raise your blood pressure to believe in an angry God. Now, if you believe God is primarily loving, for example, a God who would sacrifice himself on a cross in order to avert wrath, that God does completely different things to the brain. That God lowers your blood pressure. That God thickens and strengthens the um, uh, gray matter in your anterior cingular cortex and your prefrontal cortex. This is not like church data. This is actual science. So people who believe in a loving God and focus on that, they get neurologically healthier. Not only that, they actually have a harder time being angry, which lowers their stress and lowers their blood pressure. So... If you would self-identify as, say, an atheist, for example, and you may have heard from some atheists that belief in God is harmful or foolhardy, I'm here to tell you that's an unscientific idea. Whether or not God exists, belief in God can be incredibly healthy for you. Okay? See what I just did there? We moved the goalposts. That's kind of cheating. <laughs> How do you get God back? No matter which God you started with, obviously I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw down, I think the God of love is the best model to adopt, and I think the New Testament supports it. Uh, but how do you get back to God? I literally have analyzed the science and come up with an easy three-step process. I'm not kidding. <laughs> this is not like the ad guy. This is really, I've tried to be faithful to the science, and I have citations if you're interested. <laughs> Step one may be surprising. If you have trouble believing in God, I want you to pretend the first time I shared this publicly, an atheist blogger went ballistic. Christian apologist Mike McCarg tells people just to pretend God is real. Now, one, that's the first time I realized I was a Christian apologist. Uh, I've, never, I've never thought of that before. Um, but number two, I mean, that's like saying you can learn to drive just by learning to operate a key, right? They didn't follow the whole formula. Um, but the, the problem is, if you ask someone who doesn't believe in God to picture God, guess what happens to their brain? Nada. Nothing. There's no model. There's no neurological activity other than they process that there was a question. When you ask someone who believes in God to picture God, their brain lights up. It looks like a hybrid between a very dear friend, and a positive emotion or experience. So, if you start from zero, you have nothing to focus on for the rest of the steps. So I'm literally telling you to pretend God is real. Now this could work in any way, because I'm an empiricist and a nerd 
This is how I pretended at first. I wrote a defensible, empirical axiom which helps other people who are as nerdy as I am and confuses and confounds everyone else. My axiom went, God is at least the natural forces that created and sustained the universe as experienced via a psychosocial model in human brains that naturally emerges from innate biases. I'm a riveting writer. <laughs> Even if that is the comprehensive definition for God, the pursuit of this personal subjective experience can provide meaning, peace, and empathy for others. That is not Christian orthodoxy, folks. But it was better than zero. Because when I started to pray, and that loop in my brain, that split brain went, this is ridiculous, I went, nope. This can provide a sense of meaning and peace and empathy for others. It's good for me, like brushing my teeth or flossing or going for a run. I'm literally going to take a pragmatic approach to faith amidst doubt. Do you see what I did there? I didn't, I didn't make myself bite the whole enchilada of like a being with will and entity and triune and all Paul's writings or any of that stuff. I just gave myself something to focus on. And once I did that, I started praying. When you pray 30 minutes a day, six times a week, whatever number I asked you to picture earlier on how close you are to God, it gets higher at the end of six weeks, even if you identify today as an atheist. Prayer rewires your brain, and it's beneficial. Period. In fact, when you look at things that are beneficial for the brain, physical exercise, reading, and prayer consistently show as the three most beneficial repetitive actions you can take for mental health. And people who pray and meditate show improvements in some symptoms for Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. That's how powerful it is. So prayer is the thing. It changes your brain. And because of that, I like to talk about when Jesus came into my anterior cingulate cortex. <laughs> because your heart's a pump, right? That was good language at the time. We understand today where Christ comes and changes your life is by turning word into flesh via neurons in your anterior cingulate cortex. As you focus on God's love, it rewires who you are, and it also takes you somewhere else. If I stop to pray right now, and when I got done, stop, done praying, done stop, ooh, I must be nervous. When I got done, I would say amen, and I would open my eyes, and I would be a little confused and disoriented because I somehow feel closer to God when I pray. And that's because if you put me in a brain scanner, my parietal lobe turns off. My sense of physical space goes away. That's unique to religious meditation. Secular meditation doesn't do it, which I think is interesting. It's not a slam dunk or anything, but it's interesting. So how do you pray? Teach us science how to pray. One, focus on God's love. That's critical. That's critical. Think about how God loves you, God loves your community, God loves your family. Even if you doubt that, think about how you doubt it and how love has redeemed you in your life. At least five times a week, six is best. Work towards 30 minutes of continuous prayer. That's impossible at first, okay? That's like, I'm going to run a marathon with no training. Start at five minutes. Literally set a timer and pray for five minutes. If you don't know what to pray about, pray to God that you don't know what to pray about. It's cool. Right? Literally anything you do in prayer is, is, is positive. So there's different activities. Quick overview. We don't have time to dive into them at all. 
uh, talking to God, conventional prayer, what we call cataphatic prayer, works. Uh, you can also do centering prayer. Has anyone heard of centering prayer? Neurologically more effective than typical prayer, but less accessible. You, you focus wordlessly on God's attention. We've done some exercises with the liturgists that you could go check out, and you can listen for free online and try them. Totally cool. Uh, didn't mean that to be a plug. Uh, Lexio Divina is really great. It's a way of kind of breathing in the scripture. And if you don't know what to pray, you just use the Bible. It's like, pray by numbers. So, uh, <laughs> pragmatic. Um, so it's, it's these movements. And then there's the Ignatian exercises. If you ever have a chance to go to an Ignatian retreat or something, do it. This is by far, according to science, the, the most powerful way to make people feel to God. Now, the, the third step after we've pretended and we've prayed is we practice faith in community. Guess what? You know where human beliefs come from? Social identity. You believe an amalgam, an approximation of what the five people closest to you believe. It's, it's really sad. Studies show it consistently. So if you're like, I think I believe in God again, but I don't know if I'm going to do church. Turns out, like, the Bible's right. You can't do faith alone. And it's not just faith. You can't be like an atheist alone, perpetually. Your brain craves shared values and shared identity. So, like, the best way to come back is to practice community where you are safe. If you go to a church that makes you feel unsafe or triggers trauma, that's a recipe for disaster. I'm talking about finding a community of believers who can love and affirm and accept you just as you are at the same time as they walk with you toward who you could be. Okay? Now, here's the sad thing, if you listen carefully. I just told you the best ideas we have in science is to read the Bible, pray, and go to church. And that's exactly what my grandmother would have said. <laughs> right? Now, I Actually, someone called me out on that in a talk, this talk. And I had never made the connection. Now, what's interesting, my grandmother, who's an amazing person of faith, probably couldn't have been as prescriptive about what practices work for what percentage of the population. So the church, through experience, has come across like timeless truths, has come across deep insights through trial and error. And what excites me today is what if, as a global church, we stopped treating science as other? Now, some parts of the church treat it as an adversary, but most of the church at least treats it as an other. But what if we drew in and gathered the insights of science in ways that they told us we could help people feel closer to God, feel that God is more real, and yes, be more likely to change their behaviors in a way that benefit themselves and benefit society. I think in that situation, we treat doubt less as a death sentence or as the beginning of a great divorce and instead treat it as a component of a vital, healthy, and growing faith. That's all I got. I just like to, like, stop. I never, every time, I just full speed to the end. A lot of people have a close. I like the kind of tension in the room when people are like, wait, is that really? 
There should have been a close. Anyway, there's no close. <laughs> and yes, that actually was the end of Mike's talk, but we spent a little bit of time asking some questions with him, and uh, we actually followed up with a few that we didn't get to that night. So you can check those out in the bonus episode of this week's podcast. And if you liked what Mike had to say, you can learn more about Mike McCarg at mikemccarg.com or check the links below. Until next time, I'm Dave. And I'm Chris. We'll see ya. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox. <laughs>